All right, everyone. Good morning. I think we'll get started. I think we'll get started by saying Happy Mother's Day. Good. It's good to be surrounded by such excellent women as yourselves, and uh, you are honored and appreciated. Hopefully, feeling that way today. Certainly deserve it. Uh, I'm thankful for uh, each one of you. Um, sorry, we're not together to pass out flowers like we normally do. Uh, you certainly deserve it. So maybe here's a Zoom high five, moms. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Zoom high five. That's the lamest thing I've ever done. You deserve better than that. So happy Mother's Day to all of you. Special shout out to those moms on the screen who have little ones ripping around all during church and you have to keep them busy and have to keep an eye on them while you try to listen to this pastor talk on and on and on. It's a tough job and you're doing awesome at it. And when your kids do adorable things, we all enjoy that. So I saw Zeke earlier. He took his helmet off and was throwing it around. Love that stuff. Where would church be without that? So good job, moms. I don't have a lot of material today for Mother's Day. Um, but today's a good day to remember that while Jesus is man, God is not a person. He doesn't have a gender. And so you can speak of the motherly qualities of God as much as the fatherly qualities. And in all the ways that you are good moms, you're just taking your cues from the heavenly mother, uh, God, uh, who is just as nurturing, just as protective, just as compassionate as any good mom. So thankful for each of you uh, ladies and those of you ladies who aren't moms, uh, you are appreciated too. It's just a good day to celebrate women. So let's start by praying. Uh, God, you are so good, and as much as you are father, you are also mother to us. Thank you for your your compassion. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your care. Thank you for all the ways that you serve us. Thank you for all the ways that you lay down yourself for our benefit, and those are all qualities of a, of a good mother, like these mothers that we have here today. We praise you, uh, God, uh, for each of these women here. And what a beautiful day to celebrate them. Um, yeah, thank you for, for moms and for the hard work and sacrifice and love um, that it entails to, to be a good mom like these people are. So thank you. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Okay. Um, I, I apologize to you that the sermon has absolutely nothing to do with Mother's Day. I, I usually like to tie it in somehow, but... When you're dealing with the downfall of David, there's not a lot of positive motherly content there. So, um, it's been an intense couple weeks of sermons, which I, I completely acknowledge. As much as I've enjoyed writing them, I acknowledge that they were probably a real grueling grind to listen to the story of Uriah and Bathsheba. Um, my intention for telling their stories, Uriah and Bathsheba's, was to see... David's selfishness and evil and casual abuse of power through the eyes of the people that it affected the most, his victims. And the Bible doesn't hide how far David has fallen from the heart of God, but it's certainly interested primarily in how these events affect David from his perspective, rather than from his victims' perspectives. I think hearing the voices of the victims brings the whole ugly story into focus and makes it more human for us. I tried to incorporate as much history and Bible as possible into these stories. Obviously, I made some embellishments, but even those were based off insights that I, I got from Scripture itself, as well as wise people who know the ins and outs of 2 Samuel and Bathsheba's 
female perspective better than myself. So what we're going to do today is we're going to hear the story from the words of the Bible itself. We're going to read chapter 11, where David's dirty deeds are done dirt cheap, and he thinks that he's gotten away with it. And then we'll talk about the future, sorry, about the fullness of David's evil one more time, hopefully with input from you guys. But then we'll get to the truly shocking parts of the story of David and Bathsheba. No, a king abusing his power to take and take and take from others in order to gratify his selfish desires, that's not shocking. In fact, it's expected from people in power. As the remaining history of Israelite kings makes clear, they are all takers. And as Samuel himself had predicted many chapters ago, back in 1 Samuel 8, this is what Samuel said when the people wanted a king. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourself will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. That was spoken some, I don't know, 50 years before David rose to power. Powerful men are takers. End of story. And you don't have to look very far in our own recent history to see how that's true. So the sins of King David are not the shocking part of the story, even though the narrator's have carefully built David up as a man after God's own heart, a legend of the faith. The fact that he falls so brutally isn't what's shocking to me. There are other aspects of the story, aspects we haven't yet explored, that are far more shocking to me than what we heard from Bathsheba and Uriah. We'll get into that later. But first, um, first we'll read the disgusting downfall of David from the voice of Scripture itself, which doesn't flatter its hero. Uh, so let's start by reading First Samuel or Second Samuel chapter eleven. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Wash your feet being a euphemism for stay the night, if you know what I mean. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, 
and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, Uriah ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home, showing that even a a super drunk Uriah has more honor than the king. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? And if he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That first verse is enormous. It serves as a pivot point for the entire narrative of David in First and Second Samuel. That's where it says, uh, in the spring, kings go to war, Joab went out and fought, but David stayed in Jerusalem. We're used to everything going well for David in, in these stories. Typically, David makes choices that demonstrate a heart for God. So when chapter 11 begins with words of battle, we expect that a great victory is on its way from David. Instead, we get an ominous dismantling of David's character. While every other king heads off to war, David lingers behind. Way back in 1 Samuel 8, that's what we read earlier where Samuel says, if you want a king, he's going to take and take and take and take. And in that same chapter, Israel explains why they want a king. They want a king to go out against their enemies and fight their battles for them. That's, That's why Israel wants a king, to lead them into battle. And David can't even be bothered to do even that most basic function of a king. He sends others to fight. And the irony is that rather than serve his mandate of defending his people through the power that he has always received from Yahweh, David will instead abuse his people by misusing the power that Yahweh had gifted him. While the whole entire Israelite army is destroying and besieging David's enemies, one man is absent, the king himself. He instead besieges Bathsheba and destroys his own legitimacy as God's anointed shepherd of Israel in the process. 
He doesn't fight for his people. He fights for his own pleasure and power. And so this is the beginning of David's disgusting downfall. So tell me, and here's where I want to hear your voice. What disgusting and evil acts does David engage in in chapter 11? What commands does he break? And beyond the commands, how does David show that he has drifted far from the heart of God? What are some parts of the story that stick out for you as particularly despicable? Uh, one thing I noticed that uh, is um, a couple times in reading this in the past few weeks was that uh, he sends Uriah with his own, backing his own death sentence, trusting that he would be honorable and not read that letter that David was sending to Joab. Yes. Uh, so who has the honor there? You know, that, uh, obviously he trusted Uriah to do the honorable thing and carry that letter and not look at it. Can yeah. You imagine if he had well, changed history. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> but um, that's just more referencing that particular thing, not David's character, I guess. But uh, I always, every time I see that, I find that so odd. You send. A person his own death sentence. Yes. No, I'm so I'm so glad you brought that up, Dale. And I didn't realize that until I was writing the story of Uriah. I didn't realize that David sends him with his own death sentence. And it does say something about David's character because Uriah absolutely refuses to betray David. He refuses to betray David by going and sleeping with his own wife because that would make him unclean and unfit to return to battle. And he won't do that to the king. He has too much honor. And even when he's as drunk as David gets him, he won't betray the king. And like you said, he will deliver this important message if David says to bring it. Yeah, the contrast is powerful. Thank you for that. Carbert? I was just going to say, like, first of all, he, he commits adultery, but also he covets. Like, he, he can't... He's got power, and he's misusing it by taking his neighbor's wife. Like, it's it's all about envy and jealousy and stuff. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's so low. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you mentioned two of the commandments, and not just adultery, because adultery would indicate that Bathsheba played a role in it. It's more, it's rape, is what it is. It's a, it's a powerful man using his power to get sex from somebody who doesn't want it. And so, yeah, adultery, you mentioned, Coveting, which we don't consider a big deal because our whole society is based on coveting, but it is a big deal in Scripture. It's one of the big Ten Commandments. And when it says, do not covet, it says, don't covet your neighbor's donkey, don't covet your neighbor's house, don't covet your neighbor's wife, like you said, Barb. And David just blows right through that. Deception and manipulation and just whatever you need. Absolutely. He gets caught in a web and he tries to break out of that web with lies and deceit, for sure, Trish. Those are all great ideas. I'm, I'm sure you probably have more. Um, of the commandments that David breaks, we've mentioned adultery, coveting, also murder. David isn't the one who shoots Bash, uh, Uriah with bows and arrows, but he's the one who, as Dale mentioned, signs the death warrant and has him killed. He, the blood is on David's hands. So there's those are three obvious commandments, adultery, coveting, and murder. But I think more significant, also lying, uh, false testimony has to do with honesty, so you could throw that one in as well. But I think the command that David breaks the most are the first two commandments. 
He replaces God with himself. He thinks, I'm king. I can do whatever I want. I am a god. And he idolizes power and lust. And that's breaking the first two commandments. So he breaks half of the commandments here in one chapter. It's pretty gross. As Walter Brueggemann writes, he says, David is in control. As king, he's in control. He can do whatever he wants with no restraint, no second thoughts, no reservations, no justification. He takes simply because he can. He is at the culmination of his tremendous power. He is at the height of his ability to do whatever he wants. And that is the the heart of the evil in chapter 11. The adultery is... is the, the rape is evil enough. The murder is evil enough. But the most evil thing, the thing that makes David so completely warped and twisted is how he uses his power to take from other people. It's all evil. But that's what the, the narrators of 2 Samuel want us to see is the heart of evil, how he takes, uses his power so corruptly. David? Well, yeah, um, on verse... 25, um, the sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. My footnote says that David's callous attitude toward the unnecessary deaths he caused is chilling. So not only was Uriah killed, but he put other of his men, several of Hazarus, where they were killed. So that's pretty callous. Yeah, that's a great point. That, that's a really great point. He sends other people out to do his fighting. They trust the king and they lay down their lives for the king and he treats it so flippantly and so callously. That's a great point. Soon, however, despite all this power, all this control, things will spiral out of control for David. David cannot control Bathsheba's pregnancy. That's the first part of his plan that goes sideways for David. He has no control over her own fertility. He can't control Uriah. As much as he wants to, but he, he cannot control Uriah's sense of duty and decency and dignity. Uriah is too good a man and David can't control that. David cannot control the character and authority and will of Israel's true king, Yahweh. David has no control over the true king, even though he thinks he does. Or, I guess, more accurately, he doesn't care about the true king. He is ignoring him completely. And we don't hear from this God throughout the, the events of chapter 11. As David selfishly takes and takes and takes, as David thinks he's in control, thinks he's answerable to no one, thinks he's gotten away with it, we don't hear from God. Yahweh's silence seems like a stamp of approval. As David destroys life after life in his greedy abuse of, of people and power and privilege. Where is God in all of these disgusting events? If you're Bathsheba, you're probably thinking that every moment. Where is God in all of this? How can God remain silent in the face of such ugly injustice in the face of such greedy misuse of earthly power how can god sign off on the rape of bathsheba the murder of uriah and the evil of david where is yahweh in all of this well he's there and he sees it all and it's not until the very last verse of the chapter that the narrator brings god into the picture and it's a devastating statement this god of love and faithfulness and justice is very displeased in fact, there's a devastating bit of irony in the last half of chapter 11. When Joab sends the messenger to break the news of the failed attack on the wall, he anticipates the king's fury and frustration. In verse 20 it says, 
Joab says, the king's anger may flare up against you and he may ask you, why did you do this foolish thing? Joab anticipates the anger of the king, but the king himself, David, doesn't anticipate the righteous anger of Israel's true king, Yahweh, towards his own foolish and deviant behavior. Joab can see how a true king would react, but David can't see how the true king will react to all of this. He's so blind and ignorant. And later, when the news of Uriah's demise reaches David, David's response in verse 25 is, Ah, don't let this bother you, as David mentioned, as Dave Harris mentioned. Don't let this bother you. These things happen. He brushes it under the rug. But the Hebrew word translated upset in the NIV is the word for displeased. David encourages Joab, Don't be displeased. It's fine. The sword takes one and another. And that word displeased is the same word used against David in the last verse. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David can't see how evil his actions are because he feels justified in committing them. He is blinded by lust and power and fear. He can't see, but God can see. And God asks, as Joab anticipated, he says, David, why did you do this foolish thing? And God is very displeased, as we can imagine. But the question remains, and this is a key question, what is God going to do about all of this? Saul had his anointed kingship ripped from him for arguably far less than this. Saul was cursed by God for acts that are less intense than what we see of David in chapter 11. In fact, Saul had disobeyed by showing mercy. God had said, go destroy the Amalekites completely. Don't leave anyone alive. Take no plunder whatsoever. I want it all destroyed. And Saul does defeat the Amalekites, but he leaves the king alive. And he keeps some of the plunder, some of the sheep, some of the the precious metals. And he says he's going to give it to God. So he may have good intention. Likely it's a cover up and he was just going to keep it for himself. But Saul never took another man's life and then took the life of the cuckolded husband and then covered it all up. Saul never did anything as evil as David does here. And you could argue he has good intention, Saul does, for the disobedience that he does engage in. We'll come back to Saul later, but for now the question is this. Will David, like Saul, have his kingship ripped from him along with any hope for a successor from his line? There's tension here. And it's an important question because just a few chapters earlier, God had promised David a lineage of kings that God would show favor to no matter what. So does the what of David's rape and murder trump the no matter what of the covenant? How will God respond to the disgusting downfall of David? Actually, do you want to pause here? It's Mother's Day. I don't want to go on. I still have a bunch of pages. Do you want to pause here? at the end of chapter 11, and we'll do chapter 12 next week? Because that's a pretty natural break. Sure, let's do that. I saw a couple thumbs up. So we'll leave it there, hanging with how is God going to respond to the, the complete degradation and, and despicable downfall of David. Um, if this was Saul, if Saul had raped a woman and committed murder, Saul would have been utterly destroyed. But we know that that's not what's going to happen to David. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, but you're all familiar with what happens, I'm sure. So the question is, why does, does God curse Saul? And why does God 
not curse David, despite David's acts being far more despicable? I'm going to leave you with that question. If you want to read chapter 12, uh, please do so. It's in chapter 12 where the most shocking part of this whole saga unfolds. The most shocking part of, of David and Bathsheba is yet to come. And we'll read that next week. Um, but for now, let's pray. Um, I, I think it's important to see, and, and I'm going to get into this next week. I think it's important to see ourselves in the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, maybe you see yourself in the Bathsheba or Uriah role where injustice has been done to you. And that's probably true. But I know for a fact that each one of us is guilty of being in the David role. Each one of us is guilty of taking and taking and taking for ourselves. Um, we'll talk about that more next week, but let's leave it with those few questions. How is God going to respond to all of David's evil? And how can we see ourselves in the role of David as powerful men and women who take um, out of pleasure and, and, a, and coveting of power? Let's pray. God, thank you for... Um, this story, as hard as it is to read, and as disgusting as our hero is, we do thank you for this story. We There's a bit of a cliffhanger about what you will do, God, to David, but we know that um, you respond with forgiveness and mercy to us, no matter what despicable acts we engage in. When we turn to you, you are slow to anger, rich in love, uh, gracious and compassionate towards us. Because you're a good parent, and speaking of parents, thank you again for Mother's Day. Thank you for um, the joy of being loved um, by you in the same way a mother loves, so unconditionally, so sacrificially. Um, you will show David that same love, and you've shown us that same love as well. Father, I pray that we would turn from all the ways that we take from others, the ways that we uh, disobey you. Uh, help us to turn from those things. Turn towards you, uh, the goodness and justice and righteousness of your heart, your motherly heart, God. And whatever evil thing we've done, we are never so far from your heart that we can't turn back to you. So I pray that for each one of us, we would do that. We would turn to you this week and every week. Um, so thank you, God, for this hard story. I pray that we see ourselves in the story and turn to you. And we pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, you just got yourself out of another six pages of sermon. So I'll save that for next week. Um, happy Mother's Day again. I love all of you moms. Each one of you is, is so special to us as a church. Uh, you deserve all the honor and recognition that, that this day entails and so much more. So 18 pages of sermon next week? <laughs> yeah, better buckle up. Mercy, mercy. <laughs> <laughs> David can't see how evil his actions are because he feels justified in committing them. He is blinded by lust and power and fear. He can't see, but God can see. We're going to read chapter 11, where David's dirty deeds are done dirt cheap. Dave is going to lead us in a few songs. I'm not sure of the intro on dirty deeds, but I know the chorus. <laughs> Maybe please don't do that in church, Dave. Thank you. No, that wouldn't be too appropriate. <laughs> Honoring David is better than King David.
Yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs>